everyone, this is Philosophy of the People with Ben Burgess and Stephen Bertram, back after a relatively long absence, but at the same time every week on the weeks it happens. Uh, and this week we're going to be talking about dialectics. And can they break bricks? Uh, yeah, so I mean, this is the this is really the problem because, you know, you think about the range of subjects that can be covered here and uh, you know, there's there's no sharp distinction, but you know, figure philosophy is generally best at um, you know thinking through problems that are primarily conceptual, and um, you know, you'd actually have to do an experiment, you know, to you'd have to line up some bricks and uh, and see. Yeah, if and that's what, uh, instead of doing philosophy, they made a weird French film about it instead, and that's how I sorted out. Uh, yeah, I, I actually, weirdly enough, I actually have seen that movie many years ago, but I did see it. <laughs> they were doing like a show. I, I, don't, I don't know why more people haven't done that. Because all they did was just dub a Korean movie into, I'm sorry, not even dub, just they changed the subtitles. Yes, exactly. More people yeah. should do that. Like, I think it's a great idea to just have a film, just have fake subtitles and then just tell a story of your own. Obviously, <laughs> it'd be terrible if you actually speak Korean or whatever, but who cares about them? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I watched it, you know, before uh, my time living in Korea. So, you know, I, I suppose I would have been thrown if uh, if they'd actually used any of the five Korean words I know. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> uh, but yes, that is uh, that is a classic. Uh, it's a uh, the subtitles are about exactly what that name would indicate. Uh, but it's like a. It's been so long since I watched it. I mean, you, do you do you remember what the original movie is about, as far as you can tell? The the original movie is actually about like some kind of proletarian issue. Um, okay. It's about like a Korean farmers' revolt or something. Okay. And then the French turned it into like high philosophy. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, uh, in any case, yeah, I don't. Um, this isn't as cool as that. Uh, this is uh, this oh, is just... the original movie is about the anti-colonialist revolt in Korea. Okay, gotcha. So it, it wasn't you know, so there wasn't a complete mismatch you know between. Uh, obviously... It wasn't just about kicking people. Right. Yeah. Right. They just did. They didn't just find a random kicking people movie and put all this like Marxist theory jargon in the subtitles. You know, there was something that they, it, you know, at least sort of loosely fit the plot. Um, yeah, that's good to know. Yeah. No, I saw that at uh, a long, long gone uh, radical bookstore in Lansing, Michigan, and like I don't know, nineteen years ago, something like that. Um, but uh, but in any case, in uh, in this essay, um, uh, I am talking about uh, talking about dialectics, uh, not so much their brick breaking abilities, but uh, just the just the sort of general concept and how it fits into Marxist theory, um, and and whether. You know, and whether it's sort of um, whether it's sort of all silly nonsense uh, or there's actually something there, more or less. Uh, so this is the other half. You know, this is like the other side of the coin to an essay that I did a few weeks ago, which is actually the uh, the last time um, 
the last time we talked because there was an essay last week, but uh, I did not. We didn't do an episode about it because uh, I was driving back from the uh, San Francisco Bay Area where I'd been speaking at Jason Miles's uh, book launch uh, last Sunday. And then I think the Sunday before that, there wasn't one. But yes, three weeks ago, I suppose, uh, that uh, that essay uh, came out and um, and that was sort of um, that one was kind of primarily devoted to pushing back against um, the sort of overstated or strange metaphysical claims that uh, some people have made in the name of uh, of dialectics being dialectical uh, and arguing that, you know, that that's a lot of that stuff doesn't really make sense. And this one is primarily devoted to the other way around saying, okay, well, look, given that some of the uh, more metaphysical overstated you, you've just you've just suddenly entered a submarine or something. Oh no! Your your audio just went like not not kind of un understandable, but like it sounded like you were in the most echo echoey room that had ever existed. Oh, that's very strange. I wonder and if you're I normal can... again now. Okay. Uh, well, Sorry, I, will, I will say my cat is jumping around in the background, so it's possible he dislodged something for half a second. Uh, that would be my best guess about that. <laughs> but uh, in any case, that's like, look, so given that some of the more sweeping metaphysical claims are implausible, uh, then um, does that mean this is all just sort of silly nonsense? This like sort of maybe kind of an embarrassment if you generally like a lot of the rest of what Marx is up to and, you know, think a lot of the rest of it can be salvaged, that it's just the sort of, unfortunate artifacts of his personal background uh, that, um, you know, he started out being really into Hegel and, you know, uh, never quite got over it. Uh, And so, you know, that, you know, he sometimes expressed himself in those terms, but uh, there's really nothing there, there, right? So that's the, you know, this one is primarily devoted to pushing back against that second view and saying, no, um, there is more than nothing uh, there that there is, you know, uh, so I kind of use uh, that Richard Rorty quote that I also mentioned in the previous essay from A Spectre is Haunting the Intellectuals, where Rorty uh, sort of flippantly says, you know, it's a pity that the best political economist of the 19th century happened to major in philosophy and never quite got over it. As it's a hard, hard quote, regardless of what we think is true or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, look, the man could definitely uh, turn the phrase, but uh, but I, I kind of use that as a as a way of framing this this question, right? Like, is it uh, you know, is it a um, like, is it just kind of this unfortunate thing about um, about Marx's intellectual background that you know that he kind of has this terminology and this you know that and that like the whole thing's sort of better off without it. Or can that stuff actually lead you to having useful insights? And I think the second thing, and uh, in order, you know, to sort of illustrate that, I talk about the debate between Marx and Proudhon, um, and because uh, I just finished uh, doing this class about uh, Proudhon's um, the uh, philosophy of poverty, or you know, depending on the translation you're looking at philosophy of misery or the system of economic contradictions and 
uh, Marx's response, uh, the uh, uh, the the poverty of philosophy, and there is actually a surprising amount of dialectic stuff in both of those. Yeah, I mean, you, you do take kind of a like the centrist position in yeah. this essay, where you do start by by clarifying that it would seem strange that either Marx discovered the system which explains everything in the universe by reading um, Engels, some of Engels' reports on the work, state of working class of England in 1844, or perhaps even more strangely, if Hegel had discovered it all, but then kind of got it wrong, and then Marx ordered it out. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, if, you, if you believe what, um, you know, certainly... You know, certainly Ingalls dabbled in uh, believing uh, with the dialectics of nature stuff. What uh, Trotsky uh, certainly certainly seems to have thought, if you read his dialectics essay I talked about a few weeks ago. Um, what people like George Novak, who I quoted in here, who's uh, a theoretician from the American Socialist Workers Party, uh, what uh, you know, like what he thought. Like, if you think what these guys thought that. You know, dialectics, um, you know, is, you know, maybe understood in terms, you know, like in terms of uh, those principles from that Ingalls lays out in the anti-during about quantity turning into quality and the negation of the negation and, you know, and all that stuff, um, that this is this sort of just general fact about absolutely everything then it does kind of seem like it must be one of those two things, right? I mean, like, I, like I, I don't really know, like, either uh, either this is something that Marx somehow discovered that um, is just sort of this happy, strange coincidence that it yeah, you, Obviously, it could be that, you know, he's just revealing something in, in kind of something which is inherent in the universe. But if so, why was he the first or second guy to get it? Yeah, right. And and again, like how 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 is it that he figured this out exactly? Um and, you know, or even more confusingly, if Hegel's the one who figured it out, but he got it wrong, right? Remember Marx had to stand it on its head, right? You know, how the hell did Hegel figure it out and then after he figured it out, right, how did he mess it up? Um you know, these are you know, either either one of these would be an incredibly uh confusing claim. And, you know, I think tellingly most people who talk like this don't really um, don't really see the the epistemology of it. They're like, how do we know of it as even an issue that they have to discuss? Right. I, I uh, remember years ago reading a uh, collection of essays by C.L.R. James, who overall I actually like quite a bit, um, where he he has this kind of throwaway line about how, uh, well, you'll notice don't provide a lot of arguments for dialectical materialism, but you just sort of see that it, uh, um, you know, you, you just kind of have to see if the analysis that it produces, you know, makes sense or something like that. And it's like, okay, but I mean, that surely can't be enough. Cause like, if, if so, we could just say that about anything, right. You know, that like, uh, that just, you know, pick your favorite theoretical framework and, uh, and, uh, I'm not going to provide any arguments for it, but I'm going to sound really confident. Uh, when you know when I uh, when I talk about it and you apply it to lots of things in ways which are kind of vague. Yeah, I'm gonna apply it to lots of things in ways that leave myself plenty of wiggle room, but 
I'm going to say it all very elegantly and confidently. Um, like that, that cannot possibly be the standard. Um, so, so that, yeah, so I am skeptical about the, the general claims, uh, the general claim, right. Uh, not that like bits or pieces of this might not interestingly map onto lots of interesting phenomena, perhaps, you know, I mean, sure. Right. But, uh, that there's just sort of like what I'm skeptical about is the idea that there's some sort of general reason to suppose that everything um, works like this. I don't, I don't see what that reason would be. So given that it kind of sounds like I should be agreeing with Rorty. Uh, the, the reason that I don't is that I actually think that whatever else this might or might not describe um a lot of what this framework will sort of prime you to pay attention to a lot of um, uh, a lot of the, the sort of basic uh, structure of it actually is a pretty decent description of one very specific thing, right? Which is uh, the, the ways that um, that, you know, modes of production have, you know, risen and fallen over the course of, uh, of human history. And, you know that's not nothing, right? That's actually that's actually quite that a bit. Quite interesting uh, humans in their society. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's it's not like if it just you know, the only thing uh, the only thing it applied to was uh, was the you know, I don't know, was the social structure like the, of muskrats, right? I, I, yeah, yeah. Like the, I don't really I care that much about muskrats. Learning about right? the 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 social structure of hyenas, and it's very complicated. They're very smart. <laughs> And quite brutal too. Sure. Um, and you know, it'd be very interesting if you had a theory which could explain just that, but not quite in the way, the same way that Marxism is interesting. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. Uh, apologies to uh, to all of the um, all the hyena sociologists uh, in uh, in the audience. We we value your work. It's just. Uh, it's just not a primary area of interest. So, uh, so yeah, I, I do, I do think that, and I, and I think some of this comes out when you look at, um, when you look at Proudhon uh, versus Marx, which of course is also pretty interesting uh, in and of itself. Uh, Proudhon is this sort of massively important figure in the early history of socialism, um, he's, you know, like, <laughs> like a lot of people like that, you know, he's sort of now mostly remembered for Marx's criticisms of him, but, uh, he was, he was the first guy to ever be told that he doesn't know what dialectics are. Yeah. Yeah. Not the last, uh, or, or the thousands from the last, uh, cause it's often unclear, <laughs> famously, but, um, but yeah, in, um, so uh, if anybody has watched uh, the Christopher Nolan movie Oppenheimer, uh, there is this, um, uh, I think, at least infamous in some circles, uh, uh, goof in that movie where uh, Oppenheimer is is at a, uh, a communist party party in the uh, in the 1930s. You know, it's like party members and fellow travelers and, um, and 
somebody brings up Marx and Oppenheimer says, Oh, I've, I've read Marx. I've read capital, all three volumes. Uh, and so what do you think? Well, I think a lot of it makes sense. you know, that he, he quotes uh, property as theft, which is uh, not Marx. That's uh, that would be Proudhon, right. From, uh, from uh, what is property, uh, you know, 27 years uh, before, uh, before the first volume of capital came out. Um, and it's also, very much not Marx's way of expressing himself. I mean, it would be a great line if it was something that, like, the characters intentionally meant to get wrong because he was trying to impress, like, cute girls at the party. Right. <laughs> a la, like, Obama in college. Right, 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 exactly, yes. Uh, with the ethereal bisexual. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess that is the most charitable reading of it, that, uh, that he, uh, that, uh, that in the world of the movie Oppenheimer has not in fact read capital. He vaguely heard that somewhere. And uh, then, you know, nobody at the party, you know, wants to, uh, uh, wants to make, you know, this like famous physicist, fellow traveler, you know, feel, uh, feel, you know, feel uncomfortable by pointing out that he got it wrong. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, um, so, yeah. So, so, uh, Pradhan's earlier track, What is Property, where that line actually comes from, is um, an attack on capitalist property rights. I've seen the claim that, you know, it seems to have actually reading that may have been, you know, influenced uh, a young Karl Marx, you know, from uh, from being already this, you know, young Hegelian uh, democratic revolutionary to, uh, you know, to uh, actually becoming a socialist. Uh, certainly when Marx was in, uh, Paris, uh, after the, um, is it the, um, the Neue Rheinisch Zeitung, you know, was, uh, was, uh, was shut down if I'm getting this right. Uh, so he, during the years of the Paris exile, before he finds his, you know, final exile in London, um, he, uh, he was, he was friends with Proudhon. Uh, they, you know, they spent a lot of time talking, uh, cause, and, uh, the, one of the articles I was looking at this about said, well, they didn't really have that much in common, but they're both really interested in Hegel and socialism. Uh, and then, um, and then, uh, in the late 1840s, uh, Perdon's, um, uh, second, you know, his, uh, his follow-up track, the second confession, he calls it, uh, comes out, um, uh, the again the uh, the philosophy of poverty or possibly one of those other titles you know I think the original French is like I'm not going to do it in French because when I try to pronounce French words it sounds very funny uh, but um, you know the system of economic contradictions or the philosophy of misery or whatever but anyway the philosophy of poverty just for parallelism we'll call it that uh, the philosophy of poverty comes out and uh, Marx gets very pissed off about this. And, uh, and he writes this response as anybody who's ever seen the movie, the young Karl Marx will see him uh, the, uh, the uh, poverty of philosophy. Uh, and if you read them back to back, you can read at least the part of the philosophy of poverty that's available in English on uh, Marxist.org and also um, the poverty of philosophy at the, uh, at the same place. Um, then, uh, then you do notice that, you know, they're disagreeing about a lot of other things, but the, the Hegel dialectic stuff comes up in a surprisingly big way. 
So to give a little bit of more general, uh, <laughs> uh, Yes, uh, to to Charles's comment, I'll I will uh, I will uh, cop to being a liberal revisionist Khrushchevite. Um, but <laughs> like five minutes uh, ago. what's that? Was never in like ten minutes ago. Oh yeah, probably. I I just happened <laughs> to notice that the way the way Restream does the comments, they they don't just it's not like Streamyard where they just go by the once, you know, they they yeah, like yeah, cycle yeah. back around. Yeah. But but yes. um, (laughs) In any case, yeah. So, like the larger the larger context, I should say, for Pradhan versus Marx uh, has to do with uh, three things that are all going to be related, right? So, disagreements about economics, disagreements about history, and disagreements about dialectics. Uh, and certainly in Marx's mind, these were all very closely related to each other. So, um, so on economics, if you read the philosophy of poverty, Proudhon can be frustratingly vague about some of this stuff. Uh, I mean, frankly, there are points where he writes like a caricature of a French uh, intellectual, you know, that there's like a lot of sort of layers of irony and vagueness and it's like yes but what are you actually saying right uh, but um he he's strongly you know but he's criticizing on the one hand defenders of the status quo and on the other hand people he calls communists which um of course you don't want to be anachronistic about this in context the communists what he means by the communists are like um the, the people that Eagles would call utopian socialists uh, the, you know, Owenites, people like that. Um, and in his criticism of, you know, the communists, there's a lot of this where I think as a contemporary reader, it can get easy to get mixed up about what Proudhon's point is because, uh, you know, there's there are parts of this where he like almost writes like just like a libertarian. Uh, that, uh, and, but, as a matter of fact, you know, he's extremely critical of capitalism. Again, what is property, right? It's where he says, you know, property is theft, all that stuff. Uh, but he he's also critical of uh, the Owenites and all those kinds of people for uh, thinking we can do without, you know, markets and sort of uh, people being incentivized by, uh, by individual self-interest. Um, and uh, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't buy uh, any of that stuff, right? Uh, and he does have a certain kind of respect for uh, the economists um, who he sees as, um, you know, kind of having, having an important point is like, you know, that they, they've, they like understand important things about how, uh, econ- you know, economies really work and how, you know, the unintended consequences of, you know, attempts to meddle with how they work and so on. Uh, and so ultimately, Proudhon's argument, as best as I can understand it, is that on the one hand, you have uh, the socialists um, who want a more equal society. On the other hand, you have the economists who have this, you know, realist understanding of how economies work that creates all kinds of problems for that. And that uh, sort of 
the back, you know, that like the economists get some stuff right, the socialists get some stuff right, and um, and you need to you need to kind of understand both to you know to to understand uh, like how we can sort of reasonably figure out how to uh, how to achieve uh, how to achieve equality and crucially he he sees this he talks about this in this kind of weirdly ahistorical way in a I mean, lot of this is i found very interesting yeah like he sort of projects both of these types you know the economists and the socialists back through history there's even like a passage where he sort of suggests that like the plato aristotle distinction is like an early form of this because you know plato is a utopian and aristotle's a realist um, like kind of ahistorical and internal, but also progressive. Like it, 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 we apparently conclude these issues as we go. Yeah. So I think there is a specific sense, like it is progressive. It's not like, so he's not ahistorical in the sense that he thinks that nothing ever changes. Um, but he is... I think a historical, certainly from Marx's perspective in his view that there's a certain sense in which like the ground on which all of this happens doesn't really change. Mm-hmm. Uh, that in other words, uh, the things that, um, the things that progress over time are that economic science gets better, right? We have a better understanding of how economies, you know, work and, you know, what the consequences of doing different things are going to be. And then also there are these sort of, um, in a winding roundabout way, you know, society does, is eventually finding its way towards equality. And this is also a very weird thing that Perdon does in his book where he talks about society, like he anthropomorphizes society as this, like vast individual, right? He calls Prometheus. Uh, yeah, and, I'm very like early 19th century as a Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like much, right. much more kind of like applicable to the kind of uh, Marxism is actually uh, Gnosticism or whatever kind of stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah. Now somebody should tell Lindsay, uh, uh, get all excited about this. Um, yeah. Right. So, uh, so yes, uh, Prometheus, uh, actually, especially because Proudhon is like very weird about the God question. Like this is the, this is the part where he sounds most like a parody of a French intellectual, you know, it's like, there's a lot of like at the beginning of that book, there's a lot of like, ah, well, you know, uh, God definitely exists, by which I mean that God does not exist, by which I mean, you know, it's like, what the hell are you saying right now? Uh, but, um, but yeah, in, uh, so, uh, so Prometheus gradually figures this stuff out over, uh, over the course of, of time, even though it takes him a long way to get there. And, and some of the sort of moves, you know, might actually lead to, you know, more inequality on the way, but you know, this is, this is where they're ultimately going. And Marx, uh, moving to the third level, we'll get back to history in just a second and then economics too. But Marx gives him a particularly hard time about having misunderstood Hegel basically. So, (laughs) um, Proudhon definitely wants to be 
I, a dialectics guy. He uses all this kind of quasi Hegelian language about, um, you know, thesis and antithesis and antinomies and all this stuff. And yes, I know Hegel doesn't actually use those first two terms, but um, lots of people, including Marx, have uh, have used them to to describe uh, what uh, what Hegel was saying. And uh, and in fact, Proudhon even says something funny about uh, how uh, this thesis, antithesis, antinomy stuff that this is that you know he trusts that you know before too long. You know, we'll we'll start teaching people, you know, teaching people this in primary school, because uh, you know it's it's so obviously you know true and important. Uh, but but Marx basically accuses him of missing the entire point of the uh, the whole thing, that uh, that he says, uh, <laughs> um, sorry, I was reading the chat. Uh, he says that. You know, Proudhon is taking the idea of this sort of uh, interplay, this push and pull of opposed forces, that the progress of which, you know, the conflict between which drives things forward, and he's just kind of taking it, turning it into this sort of static evaluation of what Marx caustically calls the good side and the bad side of things. Um, and, you know, he even, Marx even has a funny line in there that's something like, um, you know, he says he's like the, you know, it's something like, you know, he's like the petty bourgeois simpleton who would say, well, Napoleon had his good side and his bad side, you know. Napoleon only had a good side. I don't know. I haven't seen the, I haven't seen the film yet. So, you know, the jury's still out on that. It's uh, fucking shit, mate. <laughs> Disaster. Yeah. Um, I, I also know there's like a much longer version that's going to hit streaming, so I'm a little bit undecided about whether to just wait for that or watch the possibly incoherent two and a half hours. Well, with, with the movie, I like checked my watch when Waterloo <laughs> started because I was like, I'm sick of this. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh well, in any case, um, yeah, the, you know, the Proudhon thing reminds me of a Foucault quote where he talks about, yeah. you know, humanity does not progress gradually from combat to com- combat until it arrives at universal repressivity. But it feels like Proudhon is saying, like, actually, it does. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that'd be a good. Uh, maybe he reads existential comics. I feel like that exchange between uh, Perdon and Foucault might be a good, uh, might be a good existential comic, but um, it, it also just reminds you because, you know, Foucault is always kind of in the background of Foucault is a critique of Marx. I'm just wondering if it's another yeah. case where someone thinks they're critiquing Marx, but actually they're just critiquing Proudhon. Yeah. I wonder. Um, Yeah, that's fun. I have to think about that. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think that so uh, so essentially what Perdon is doing, or certainly what Marx accuses Perdon of doing, is sort of recasting dialectics into this uh, process where you know, the big you know collective Prometheus is 
trying has this problem to be solved and the problem to be solved is how to keep the good side of various phenomena while getting rid of the bad side um and so marx you know quotes different things that Perdon says about like you know division of labor you know good side uh it's you know makes everything much more efficient you know bad side it's like psychologically stultifying to you know have to do the same repetitive tasks all the time um and and that this sort of the the sort of historical process of progress is the process of figuring out how to um you know how to to keep the good side while you know while ditching the the bad side and you know so uh so you know really how to achieve this goal of equality uh while um you know while dispensing with uh, you know without you know without like economic disaster basically um and so i think that the um i think that the the place where this all really comes to a head and i, and I think the sort of three levels the economics the history and the philosophy um sort of come to bear in in maybe the most interesting way is that you know, one of Perdon's defenses of markets, um, and you know, is is about the French Revolution. And I should say really quickly, just on the general subject of Perdon and markets. Uh, so, again, Perdon doesn't go into any detail in the philosophy of poverty about, um, or at least the part of it that's available in English, certainly uh, about. Um, what his alternative to capitalism looks like, but from what I've been able to tell elsewhere, um, you know, Proudhon, you know, prefers to call that alternative to capitalism uh, mutualism, and uh, roughly the idea behind mutualism is, okay, we're rejecting capitalist property rights um, in favor of some sort of like occupancy and use norms. Uh, that, you know, who gets what, you know, has to do with, you know, who's actually there and using it. Um, so um, so this there is an obvious challenge to capitalist property rights in there because, you know, if you, uh, you know, if, if you're uh, like a group of workers at a factory in Lyon and, uh, uh, and then, you know, you would have a better claim to that factory than, somebody in Paris who like has a piece of paper, you know, entitling, uh, entitling them to it. Um, and so, and, and Proudhon is also it's a little ambiguous and weird, but, you know, but, uh, it is often, you know, often seems the father of anarchism and, you know, and he certainly does talk very anarchistically sometimes. Um, and so, you know, Perdon doesn't like, you know, the police power that's enforcing this uh, monopoly, uh, which is kind of his name for like standard capitalist uh, property claims. And he thinks that, uh, you know, in his preferred setup in the future, you'd have uh, independent artisans and, you know, collectives of workers or whatever uh, who are all um, using this sort of, um, bottom up like mutual exchange bank you know are are trading with each other and um and you know and and um you know Proudhon is also a big value theory guy so you know it's very important to him everybody's you know everybody's keeping you know the full value of uh of what they produce and so 
you know, I've seen this described as um, in some ways Perdon, you know, he, I mean, he's sort of anticipating both, but it's it's sort of a halfway point between later kind of individualist and collectivist forms of anarchism. Um, you know, the kind of anarcho-communism of an Emma Goldman or, a, you know, Alex Berkman or, you know, Kropotkin or, you know, uh, any of those people on the one hand and, you know, sort of individualist anarchism that might be very pro-market or whatever on the other hand. So, so that's, so that's Perdon's uh, perspective. Uh, I don't even necessarily disagree that the kind of socialism that we would sort of logistically know how to create in the, you know, short term, you know, might have to uh, retain, you know, some market mechanisms in some sectors of the economy. Uh, but um, I do, I do think the idea that, you know, you could just sort of rip, you know, rip down the state and hope that the result is, is sort of uh, mutuality and egalitarianism is... I mean, why, why does he think, why doesn't he think that Prometheus has kind of decided against small traders as small <laughs> traders are getting, like, blown the fuck out during his life? Yeah, that's a really good question, right? Uh, this, this seems to be, this seems, there seems to be some, some pretty wild... Uh, you know, cherry picking here because it does seem not unreasonable to think that part of what's driving this, I think certainly, uh, certainly what, you know, I think drove some people to accept this. If, you know, if you think about, you know, Proudhonites, you know, in the early socialist movement is precisely that, you know, that they sort of, um, that this was a very appealing view to people who were like small artisans who, who wanted to hold on to that. Right. Uh, but, um, but yeah, no, excellent question. Um, I, mean, I, I don't know why, but the love for kind of small businesses endures incredibly strongly in, in kind of the modern human mind, for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, I, I kind of get it. Like, um, it's, you know, I, I mean, one, certainly, you know, I, th I think one big thing is just that, uh, there's a, there's a desire for, you know, for a kind of autonomy that, you know, small business owners have that, you know, obviously, uh, obviously workers, you know, don't have. I mean, I, 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 I think mean, that, I can never find the quote, but Marx is a section where he talks about the sole producer uh, and makes, makes clear that the sole producer was not actually like much like more free than the proletarian because the, the, the sole producer was kind of basically like strapped into his workroom and yeah. by like the necessities of work. And, you know, it was a necessity which like, as we experience now with people uh, who are academics and stuff like this, who where the work never really ceases, where you, you choose when to work, but functionally this means that you're never off the clock. Like I mean, the I ability to choose to work means that you, you don't, don't have the ability know. to choose not to work. I don't know what that would be like, but it sounds awful. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if, uh, no, I mean, the even better thing would be that if you, you know, like hypothetically, if, if you were to like, uh, you know, be a small business owner, like you had a, you know, you had like a podcast and YouTube channel, for example, and then, uh, but then you also spent like half of your time 
writing articles for Jacobin, which are also things that, you know, you could choose when to do, but you know, you have to, uh, but you know, you end up spending it all day <laughs> doing it, uh, you know, writing a sub stack, but yeah. Uh, no, I, I think the only, the only times when it's actually nice to be a small business owner is with those small business owners, which aren't like what the nice thing we imagine, which is people who just don't do any work, but own a business. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, the fantasy is that you uh, is that, you know, you feel some sort of sense of worth and accomplishment because you're working a little bit. But like yeah, you, um, you like do the taxes, which like appropriate, which like lay out like in a Marxist, almost Marxist way, exactly how much surplus labor you're getting. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, uh, that's. Uh, I mean, I think that. So I think Marx is right about that. Um, I think that I will say, I mean, I wrote an article a couple of years ago for Jacobin about uh, the sort of phenomenon of like all of these incredibly popular books and courses and YouTube videos about how to start your own business. And, uh, and again, I, th I think the desire for a certain kind of autonomy is huge there. Like there's a, um, um, like the phrase that you see the most often in all of this, in all of this literature and et cetera, et cetera, is be your own boss. Right. Like that's the, that's what people want, right. To, that they don't, they don't have a boss over them, that they're the, they're the decision maker. Now, pretty clearly in practice, um, you know, the small business owning life, you know, because it's small. And so, uh, you know, it, it requires your constant energy. You know, that's, uh, right. I mean, if, if a man life. isn't your boss, then capital is your boss. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, it's a, yeah, I mean, I mean that, that, uh, that, yeah, I mean that there is a sort of, um, like there is a sort of, um, ge you know, general servitude to the market itself is, you know, like there's this famous passage in volume three where Marx talks about, you know, as the, uh, you know, says the you know, talks calls it a blind power. Uh, that, uh, that seems to, to dictate everything. And, you know, it's, I, I think you could definitely, uh, see his point, right. You know, that it's like, even if we, um, you know, even if we achieve some sort of market socialism, you know, there, there's still, uh, this, there's still a sort of sense in which that kind of, um, dominance hasn't been, been overcome. Right. And if, and, and, you know, this is a reason why this is the kind of thing like Lee Phillips talks about, the end of people's Republic of Walmart, you know, that, um, why, you know, to, you know, when you can sort of see ways to, to go further into more of a, you know, full communist sort of direction without sacrificing other things you care about, um, you know, why you, you might want to push, uh, you know, push forward in that direction. I'll also say that, um, the sort of anarchist version of, that kind of market mutualism that, you know, that Perdon has is maybe the least appealing um, possible version of it to me, because um, if there's no state, you know, presumably there's no welfare state. So uh, that's, yeah, uh, I mean, that, that's what I thought when Perdon was like, well, actually let's, let's all have everything we produce. And it's like, well, fuck your grandma. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Right. That's uh yeah, if, if you get the, I mean, this is the sort of thing, of course, uh, much later after Proudhon died, you know, but uh, this is the sort of point that Marx would later be making 
uh, in critique of the Gotha program and in, in one of the footnotes capital where it's like, no, come on guys, every, there's no possible system in which the immediate producers can keep everything. The, uh, the, the question is, is, you know, the real question is who gets to decide who else gets what, not does anybody else get any? Cause that would be just a crazy thing to say. No. Cause yeah. Then, you know, what grandma stars to death unless, you know, like, or. Yeah. Uh, and presumably Prudeau's answer would be, you know, well, obviously people will do that. It just won't be kind of imposed by a system, but that is, is like a, again, like a very neoliberal answer. <laughs> That's like David Cameron, big society stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. Totally. And you know, to be fair, um, to be fair, of course, uh, the um, you know the welfare state uh, was um, you know essentially didn't exist in this era. Although to be even fairer, um, like Marx certainly saw uh, the the need for it. I mean, one of the lines of the discussion in the critique of the Gotha program is like. He says what we what we now call poor relief would surely exist to a much greater extent, not a le- not a lesser one under socialism. Yeah, I, mean, I was going to say in England we kind of did have a welfare system with with poor rates and so on, where basically it was just done kind of on it wasn't done by the the central state, but it was done by kind of each borough or whatever. Yeah, um, and I think there was a I think there was like a a national mandate for that to be done yeah um, it was the law you had to do that like, and then it was the councils well whatever they were called back then they weren't called the councils uh, right. they had the responsibility to then you know raise the money and spend it yeah i actually and just yeah, went through a lot of drama because you were responsible yeah. for the people in your area but obviously if you get them to go away <laughs> like we do with homeless people now right 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 <laughs> yes uh yeah um Yes, which, uh, yeah, I, I actually just uh, finished reading this book called uh, The Blazing World about mostly the English Civil War. It goes from James I to the Glorious Revolution. And um, and there's a, and there's some, like, very funny, you know, stuff in there about, uh, like, various writers in, like, the late 1600s who are mad about poor relief in ways, you know, in, in ways that sort of make them sound like 21st century right wingers uh, that, you know, nobody wants to work anymore. This is the, the, the charter for the lazy and indulgent, you know? So, um, but, uh, but yeah, right. So there was a, you know, there was like just the very beginnings of one. Right. And like Marx certainly thought, yes, under socialism, you'd want much more of this, uh, you know, you'd, you'd want, you know, much more, not less, uh, you know, assistance for people who, for, you know, whatever reason, uh, you know, weren't, uh, weren't working. Um, so yes, that's all, th- those were all good questions. I'm also just, um, you know, I, I also, uh, have a footnote in here kind of grumbling about the, just a couple of general things about anarchy, like any form of anarchism that I find implausible. And I think if you add markets to it, it gets sort of more implausible, that's um you know i don't think um you know i i think that the idea that like we can sort of uh forego like institutional society-wide uh decision making uh and 
and just kind of hope that good things will spontaneously result from that is uh is fairly implausible right you know that they that you know generally speaking people disagree about stuff and you know you do need you do need some mechanism for resolving those those disagreements and you know deciding what happens um and i don't like the sound of resolving them by voting with my dollar i I feel like there's perhaps fair systems Yes, yes, that is one of the worst ones. Uh, if you're uh, if you're voting with your dollars, uh, I have very many dollars. Yes, exactly. Yes, uh, and you know, and even if we start out with the same number of dollars, uh, if if we're in, in, in if we're imagining a stateless uh, society um, in which there aren't any kind of like you know institutional guardrails against the the reemergence of inequality. Um, I'm pretty skeptical that it won't reemerge, especially if you have markets, because you know markets have winners. Yeah, I mean, because obviously some people are more productive right? than others. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And you know, calamities happen, and you know. And whatever. is there any is there any way in Predoism to make sure you can't do inheritance? Like, sure, you uh, children, you're also using the bigger house you've made, which has the best industrial machine in it, or whatever, throughout their life, then. What, what, does anything stop you from passing on your advantage to your children and so on and so on and so on? That is a very, very good question. Um, it, I have to say, uh, he doesn't specifically address that in the philosophy of poverty or again, you know, I keep saying, you know, the, the part that's available in English that I've seen, but the, uh, but it sure feels like he would be against some, you know, any sort of attempt to like prevent people from uh from leaving things to uh to children uh fun fact by the way the uh yeah like surely he can't like ever oppose you passing something from like hand to hand yeah right that all seems fine, the, right? the least the least alienated kind of exchange possible totally yeah so it, it seems like you would have to be fine with it yeah this is um fun fact by the way in two at the end of 2020 um I had, I realized, I, I, I later realized I miscounted, but, um, but I thought that at the end of 2020, it was like December 29th or something, uh, that I had written uh, 51 articles that year. And I thought, okay, this is ridiculous. Uh, it's a very silly thing to be, you know, annoyed at, but it's like, I nevertheless, so I like emailed a couple of editors, Jack, and I'm like, hey, this is... need to get 52. Can, can I do something really quickly in the next couple of days so I can get to 52? And uh, I think Sean Goody had the idea that I, I should write something about inheritance, which I did. And then I believe... Uh, <laughs> this is why I wrote it. And I believe that turned out to be my most viewed ever article on Jacobin because a bunch of... Um, like the last I heard, there were like half a million views or something on that article because uh, a bunch of right wingers got mad about it and like hate shared it, and did videos about it. Uh, so it's called abolish inherited wealth, and you know you can speculate for yourself why that's one that uh, hit a nerve. But uh, but yeah, certainly the line I take in there is that it's like, look, if you want um, a long term equal society, you better not have inheritance because you know, come on, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think these were all very, very good objections to Perdon, but, uh, per, you know, but something that's maybe even more objectionable is that when Perdon is making his 
you know, arguments for, for his view, this sort of mutualism rather than communism. Um, one, you know, some of them are arguments that you might expect that, you know, have to do with human nature and things like that. But, um, uh, but one of them is, uh, from the authority of the French revolution that, uh, that the, that the French revolution, um, uh, you know, proclaimed, uh, you know, free trade along with all the other liberties uh that uh that were that were being that were being proclaimed and it's it's just absurd to to try to to reverse this uh this historical progress right so again he he seems to take it you know he doesn't use this exact phrase in there but it's like this is like one of prometheus's uh you know settled uh judgments and you know marx takes him to task for this in the poverty of philosophy in exactly the way that you would expect him to right you know on exactly the grounds you would expect him to that it, that he says uh well hold on right just because it sort of um people in the 18th century uh did this in order to um meet the historical needs of their time that doesn't mean that other people in the 19th century to meet their historical needs uh shouldn't you know shouldn't do the opposite and I, mean, I feel like for no other point if you if you'd said basically like well it seems unlikely that we're going to get rid of free trade like right now because it's literally just happened yes and that it was a role that it's probably hasn't played out yet but that wasn't what he was saying yeah yeah, yeah. What he was saying. yeah exactly right you know it's like it's like oh this is this you know six decades later this is etched into the fabric of the universe now um seems to have been the actual argument whereas you're like come on man it's only been six decades what do you think of the chances are that we're ready for the next thing yet would be a much better argument but i think on this argument marx has him dead to rights uh and and i also think that if you sort of reflect on this difference a little bit i think you do actually see why going back to the title i think it's actually a good thing that the best political economist of the 19th century was a philosophy major uh, and never quite got over it because uh, because the fact that Marx has these Hegelian lenses that you know that he he tends to um, he tends to see things in terms of um, this dialectical process of um, you know opposing elements you know within a system you know uh duking it out and then this you know then this this uh transforming whatever you started with and creating a new situation that in turn have their own opposing elements that etc right this whole sort of structural framework that he's getting from hegel um you know there's no guarantee of this but i think it does just happen to be the case that this turned out to be some pretty useful lenses for looking at human history and this is leading him to, you know, I think have a clearer view of things than um, than Perdon uh, Perdon has. Uh, that he uh, that he sees uh, that um, that the um, like this whole framework where Marx can see, okay, what was the revolutionary class in a past era, you know, like that these aren't just sort of things that humanity, you know, realized in the late 18th century 
that it needed. And now we're waiting for the next realization, which will just build on that one. Right. But rather uh, this, uh, this is a expression of this historical phase because this ascendant class in the late 18th century, that was the revolutionary class at the time um, is now the, the reactionary class and, uh, and, uh, you know, the thing that would actually move history forward is the, the victory of uh, the workers uh, against it. And they have completely different, you know, historical needs um, that, you know, I think this is a vastly more useful, uh, you know, framework for, for understanding history. I think it, I think it's going to, I think seeing things this way is going to lead you to get a lot more stuff right. And it's going to provide you with a much more useful roadmap uh, then, um, you know, then the sort of, um, you know, collective humanity figuring stuff out of you that Pradhan has. And I think it is, I think it is a direct consequence of the fact that he has this, uh, this dialectical framework. Now, ultimately I do still think that, um, when you're, that when you look at the claims that are made in that language, that you do have to be able to parse those claims in terms of ordinary cause and effect in order to make sure that like, no, 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 this actually does make sense here. Right. That like, I'm, I am saying something that's right and that I have a good argument for and all that stuff. Um, and that needs to be hashed out on a, on a case by case basis. But, you know, but yeah, I, I, I think, you know, ultimately, you know, dial you know, I ultimately dialectics or the materialist kind of dialectics, uh, is, uh, is good. You know, it might not be able to break bricks, but it can certainly help you understand history. I was going to say, if they're, they're material enough to break bricks, then we like them. Fair enough. <laughs> so the Napoleon movie was fucking terrible. Okay, do tell. Yeah. <laughs> My friend asked me what I was kind of wishing for and expected for, and I didn't anticipate this to be in the movie, but I thought there was like maybe a 5% chance it would be in and at least there would be like some political references. But I said to my friend that, you know, I hoped in the movie they, they would talk about Napoleon's emancipation of the Jews. Uh-huh. Um, but the movie rather is so apolitical, it can't be counter-revolutionary. Like there are just no politics in the movie at all. And uh-huh. What? Oh, sorry, you were saying? Everything that Napoleon does in the movie, he does because he's getting cucked. <laughs> All of his major choices. He leaves Egypt because he's getting cucked. He leaves Elba because he's getting cucked. <laughs> he's, he's completely socially inept. I, I don't know if he's meant to have like autism or, or what Ridley Scott was thinking. <laughs> he's like this towards the end of the movie. He has the famous scene where he like, he goes before the soldiers and opens up his chest. And like, you know, you know, if anyone wants to shoot the emperor, shoot me. And if not, come and join me. But in the movie universe, there's no way that that scene makes sense because he's the least charismatic man in history. Like everything he does is just so awkward and weird. And yeah. the, I mean, the, the battle scenes are absolutely terrible. Um, and the rest of it doesn't make up for it. 
The only interesting person is Josephine, um, his wife, Empress Josephine. But that's only done by kind of making him so pathetic and useless. (laughs) And the thing is, it's this kind of thing of like, you know, there's Napoleon the man and there's Napoleon the world spirit. And I'm not really interested in Napoleon the man. I don't want a movie about Napoleon the man. I want a, a movie about Napoleon the world spirit. And in this movie, it kind of shows him doing the actions of, of Napoleon, the world spirit, but only because he's Napoleon, the man. Like he, he conquers all of Europe because he came back from Egypt because he was getting cooked. Which, as far as I can tell, would be, I mean, I guess I'm not sure about the cucking, but the, um, as far as I could tell, is close to uh, exactly the opposite that, you know, as, as soon as, you know, certainly after the, um, you know, certainly by the time of the Brumaire coup and after that, uh, it, it seems like, you know, Napoleon, the man barely existed. I mean, the guy spent like 18 hours a day working, you know, like, uh, was just, you know, um, constantly, uh, you know, cause I mean, you know, thinking about and micromanaging, you know, every aspect of, uh, of his empire, so yeah, that's uh that... no, they they never name Marshall Ney the whole time. <laughs> Standing there with like Marshall Ney's face, but he's never once gets named. And Napoleon never like he he's just like a conduit for orders. Like he, Napoleon never has a conversation with him. Uh so yeah, yeah for for watching the five hour version when it comes out on streaming. The thing about the current version is it does seem ponderous and slow. But at the same time, incredibly rushed. <laughs> For instance, like the the um, the Italian campaign completely doesn't exist. Uh, the big battle he has in Russia lasts like sixty seconds. But the guerrilla the guerrilla campaign in Russia is also given sixty seconds. It's 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 stunning what he's produced. Really, it's a kind of impressive. And how much of a, a strange mess it is. Yeah, especially because you'd think Ridley Scott of all people. I mean, you know, if you if you want like a uh, if you want like a big, big sort of epic sweep Napoleon movie, this seems like the guy who should give it to you. Yeah, I was, I was optimistic, but it wasn't even very loud. I remember how <laughs> loud June was, and then this movie was really not loud at all. <laughs> oh. Um, someone asked earlier, um, would you two be open to doing a libertarian episode? I think that'd be a fun essay to put on your docket for eventually to do one on self-ownership, the idea of self-ownership, whether that make that's a concept which makes any sense. I don't know if you've ever written about it before. Uh, you know, I don't think I actually have, I have written about it. So, um, yeah, I'd be actually, you know what? That's a good idea. Um, I, cause I, I do think i have a view on this right which is that um like you know personal autonomy and you know your rights to your body and all of that are extremely important but um it's it's not uh but you know the like a sort of bourgeois ideology to um to mix that idea up yeah, to frame it in terms of is, is owning it like you own a house. 
Exactly. It's like property ownership, right? Yeah. And uh, I don't own my body. I just am my body. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. I, I have a, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's definitely because, you know, because you sort of, there are different ways in which somebody can have rights over something and uh, ownership. You know, now I think the boundaries of ownership are a little vague because more than anything, these are really defined by legal systems. But like, um, but, you know, ownership is a concept that mostly arises with regard to to trade. Right. You know, and, and one, uh, you know, I don't actually think. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, no, no, thank you. Um, I, I, mean, I, I think an age of consent episode would be pretty boring. Yeah, I really don't. Like, it's kind of arbitrary. We need to draw a line somewhere, and probably the lines that we currently have are about right. Yeah, no, that would be that would be exactly my position on that. Um, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's also, you know, I mean, yeah, there is a certain thing that like I think some libertarians like to do, where they're like, oh, but it is so arbitrary. Like, you know, what's the difference if it's like you know a month sooner or later? To which my two responses would be, uh, one, uh, you're committing the continuum fallacy, you know, if you if this is supposed to be a reason to, to sort of reject the idea of an age of consent, that, um, you know, blurry lines doesn't mean that you don't have clear distinctions, you know, between, you know, clear cases on either end. And, of course, legal systems, as you say, have to have a line somewhere. And then my second response is just the, the unabashedly statist one that people who talk this way should probably be on watch lists. Yeah, uh, what do people expect from the law? Yeah. Like an arbitrary sword point, which just kind of separates things in an arbitrary line. Like, what else is it going to be? Because you have to, because it's like, if you want to be ruled by laws instead of ruled by the whims of judges, then uh, then you better have some arbitrary distinctions in there somewhere. Yeah, I, mean, I do think there is a thing in kind of American culture, especially kind of American right-wing culture, which thinks that kind of, the law and legal interpretation and judges can kind of like, like, a, like a fix into law, like the real reality of liberty and freedom in some kind of totality, totality of a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fair enough. But yes. Uh, but the self ownership thing I think is, is interesting because I, I do, um, I do actually, uh, I do actually think that uh, that this is this is an important point, right? Like that this is you know essentially what Marx is talking about in the um, you know beginning of the Communist Manifesto that you know about all human relationships you know being, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, being yeah. reduced to a cash nexus. You know that it's like no, uh, you know, yeah, you do have very important rights over your yourself, your your body, right? The I, I think um, you know it would be um, you know, I obviously care about abortion rights, for example, that would be, you know, which is, which is surely primarily a question of bodily autonomy. Um, I, you know, would be horrified by like, you know, non-consensual organ transplants, but, um, you know, even if, you know, even if you were being left with one kid, this, you'd be okay. Uh, but, uh, but I also think that, in fact, I believe the new guy in Argentina has has talked about, you know, like legalizing organ sales, legalizing organ sales. Right. And this is, I think, where the rubber meets the road on whether you see these these rights that you have over your body as a form of ownership. 
right? You know that the because uh, also for that matter, I mean, if it's a, if it's a, if it's a question of <laughs> right, they basically seem like versus seeing yourself as identical to yourself and thus giving you right. some rights versus seeing your body as something you own seems to only legalize bad things like <laughs> slavery and organ sales and yeah, selling why should it why shouldn't you be able to sell yourself into slavery if you uh if it's a if it's a question of property rights if i own something like normally part of what that means is that i can if i so choose sell it and, you know, um, and, and slavery doesn't have to be like an internal contract with no ways of getting out or whatever most most slavery in history is not being american chattel slavery or whatever it was quite normal, like in Rome and Greece and so on, it was normal to buy yourself out of slavery. So there can't be an objection then that, you know, there's something about slavery, which means it necessarily abolishes the idea of, you know, this ownership distinction. Because I, I think the libertarians do have a point where they say, well, you can't sell yourself into slavery because at that point you give up all your rights and it doesn't really kind of make sense. But, you know, the, the system doesn't have to be one where you immediately go from like Western citizen to American chattel slave. Yeah. Uh, and, and those other forms of slavery are also, you know, bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I'm going to take the, uh, the, the reason I highlight this comment, because do you know who practices prim primogeniture? Um, hyenas. <laughs> they actually practice uh, ultra magenature, but basically the, um, the youngest female pup inherits the whole thing when her mother dies which seems crazy, uh, a system for a non-human animal to have, because it, even even humans in Europe didn't manage to establish uh, sole inheritance laws until like the 11th century, after having like hundreds of years of crisis of, of medieval realms splitting uh, upon the death of the, of the ruling monarch. So I think hyenas are at least as well-developed as kind of uh, dark age Europeans. Yeah, no, that sounds about right. Um, awesome. Yeah, this is. Uh, they they often did have salaries. Well, not salaries, but they had wages. Like for yeah. instance, in, in in Athens, um, being a the distinction between being a slave and a wage laborer was, as a slave, you definitely had to give some some of your wages up to your owner. Yeah, I mean there have been. Um, yeah, so. I mean, if you own somebody, you typically don't have to pay them anything. There's a, uh, you know, there are some, yes. there have been some slave systems. Uh, ah, you know, you know what? I take it back. I take back what I said earlier. I, I, I now find hyena sociology pretty interested. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, there, there certainly have been, uh, been systems where, you know, sometimes slaves are given a little bit of spending money or sometimes slaves are allowed to like spend, you know, one day a week, you know, like, uh, running some little stall in the market on their own from what they grow in their garden. Yeah, they get to be a proletarian for a day a week. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, the idea, you know, buying yourself out of slavery, there have been slave systems where that would make sense, but you know, nonetheless, uh, you know, slavery seems seems pretty bad, and I'm not even sure I'm convinced by that sort of standard libertarian response. That's like, well, uh, because you, you know, the because self ownership is so fundamental, you can't sell it away. It's like, well, you own y yourself, or 
or you don't. I, I, I don't know. This is a... Uh, yeah, yeah. If you can't, it either becomes... It either legalizes bad things or it amounts to just being the same as the other thing, which in which case I don't really see what the point of the distinction is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, I, you know, I mean, it sort of, look, I mean, there might be all sorts of things that after I sell them, I, I later regret it, but you know, no, no later libertarian, no standard libertarian would say, therefore I have a right to, to reverse the sale. Uh, For the, because... vast, the, the vast, 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 majority of human civilization there was no such thing as age of consent laws age of consent laws are like an invention of of late modernity the only concept of there was no concept of age of consent it was just kind of sex which happened between married couples and sex which didn't yeah um right and you know and i i think that the uh that you know marriage might not happen although sometimes it did uh you know before then but like that's the that's just because of you know fertility right um yeah no like why would you marry a 12 year old unless you're a pedophile <laughs> yeah um yeah no it's like uh but anyway yes uh that is i think that i think that something about self-ownership could be interesting uh let me mull that i was going to you know since i usually try to alternate the sort of uh marxier topics with the more general philosophy topics week by week um my original thought, I haven't written it yet, but my original thought about next week was that I was going to talk about uh, uh, the um, uh, Sabine ha- Hassenfelder's uh, uh, claim that uh, that that uh, uh, that physics doesn't assume the existence of electrons. But uh, ah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll do self ownership. I you know got some time to think about it. But the un- the uncurious. Sabrina Hosfelder. Yes, that would be <laughs> that would be like the um, yeah, like like the names in Homer, you know, it's the uh, um, you know, fleet-footed Achilles, whatever, you know, yeah, yeah. curious Sabrina Hosfelder. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, we'll see you next week, friends. Bye.